You may remember that I told you that these guidelines come out of a discourse called the Ratavinita Sutta, the relay coaches, and that there are seven relay coaches and that we need all of them in order to get to our goal. So far we've talked about the first two, <coughs> the purification of virtue and the purification of heart and mind. We have to use all six of them in order to get to the seventh, which takes us then to the destination. And we can never just use the ones we prefer. They always have to meet up with the previous one. So the next one is called the purification of view, of views. And these, all these next ones are now concerned with gaining insight. And you may be able to infer from that that we get, we need to become calm in order to gain insight. We have the ability to gain some insights as we become and get some calm. The more calm we get, the easier it is to gain insight. And some of it, some of these insights, are inescapable when the mind has become calm. We can't deny them, nor can we refrain from getting them. So the pathway in this particular sutta goes from Sila Samadhi to Panya, which is the established dis distinction and uh, division in the teaching, virtue, concentration, wisdom. That's what the teaching is often also called, Sila Samadhi and Panya. We have on other occasions a uh, different distinction and different division, but in the discourses, we always find it in that way. Now, the purification of view concerns the view we have about ourselves. And one of our difficulties lies in the fact that we identify. I'm a woman, I'm a man. I'm clever, I'm stupid. I'm middling. I'm pretty, I'm ugly. I'm bearable. Whatever it is that we think about ourselves, that's me. We've got a whole gamut of stuff there. And the more we've got, the more we've got to keep it intact. And rule the 
one who comes and tries to break down one of those. We get upset, angry, and aggressive. The more of those identifications we have, the more difficult it is to keep them all together. And we need a support system. So I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a daughter, I'm a son. We've got to keep all those people together that make us that. We can't be any of those things if we haven't got the other person to go with it. So we've got to keep them all in place. And we've got to keep them in order. We've got a difficult task ahead of us. And this particularly difficult task is one which doesn't really bring any favorable results because every once in a while one of these identification systems breaks down. Somebody doesn't agree with it. Maybe I think I'm beautiful. Well, somebody else doesn't think so. Or maybe I think I'm clever. Or maybe somebody else just doesn't agree with that. And so I'm, there's this identification system of those two has already disappeared or is in danger. I feel endangered. Or maybe if I'm a mother, my children don't have anything to do with me. So another identification system which is endangered. And if it isn't, I've got to re-establish it constantly. They really do want to see me. They really do like me in order to keep that mother or father thing going. It's not only difficult, it's energy-consuming, and it's wrong view because it's based upon outside conditions. And outside conditions can never be under our jurisdiction. <coughs> How can we make anybody else agree to what we think is so obviously and utterly correct? It's it's impossible. It's not only difficult, it's impossible. And this is also the reason why the Buddha's teaching was never a missionary system. He, he did tell his monks to go out and tell the Dhamma to others who wanted to hear it, who came along and wanted to know about it. And to this day, we have that same injunction. We tell to those who want to hear it. Now, not only do we have the view of this identification system, which is um, a chore to keep in order, but we also have a view about ourselves which is like a heap. We look at this person in the mirror and we know without even saying anything, that's me. We don't have to say it. We don't have to think about it. We know it. We sit here on this pillow, and that's me. What else could it be? So the Buddha advocates analysis and taking ourselves apart, particularly into the two things of which we consist, which are mind and body. Now, we have a um, theory going, especially in this um, uh, esoteric marketplace, that 
mind and body have to be one. Well, that's what everybody believes, isn't it? But the Buddha's teaching are that they're not, they're two. Now, just for one second, think about this. The body breathes, and the mind knows it. Can the mind breathe and the body know it? It's so simple, it's ludicrous. There are two things going, mind and body. Now, to become one, the mind needs to be attentive to what the body's actions are, which is mindfulness. And with mindfulness, of course, we also become aware of the fact that the mind gives the orders. And in the meditation, on the breath, or in walking meditation, these are two particularly useful methods to see that the mind has a function which is totally separate from the function of the body. Our mistaken view comes about from the fact that we react to the bodily sensations constantly with the mind. Just think for a moment that we were in an anatomy class. There's a body lying here which we are supposed to dissect because that's what we're learning. Now, this body obviously couldn't have a mind in it. Otherwise, we couldn't dissect it, could we? So we can cut it up any which way we like. It will not say a thing. It won't object. Now, just for a moment, put a mind back into it. Well, it's going to be in a great uh, quandary there. You can't do anything with it. It's going to tell you all about it, what that particular mind thinks about such goings-on as dissection. So if we have a body without a mind, we have flesh and bones, blood, if it's still alive and hasn't dried out yet, and we have all the necessary functions in a body that keep it going. But when there is no mind, then it can't obey any orders. So we, as we are alive and have both of these, we need to find that distinction where we can see ourselves quite clearly that the mind is in charge. The very first verse of the Dhammapada starts out, which are 354 verses spoken by the Buddha at different times, starts out with mind is a master. I already mentioned to you that we need to become aware of the fact that we have a master and a servant and that we need to look after the one who's in charge, at least equally well as we look after the servant. would stand to reason that the one who's in charge is a little more important, but seeing we're living in a democracy, maybe we can't quite do that. So um, we'll keep them, uh, keep them equally attentive to them. But in the last analysis, our main focus of attention needs to come to the mind. So 
which will naturally be clear enough and knowingly enough to look after its servant in a manner which befits the household. This life, this person that we are, can be looked upon as a household which has to be kept in order. And if we don't keep our household where we live in order, we wind up in a mess where we can't find the necessary papers and where we can't find anything in the end. It's all upside down. Well, that's what happens inside of people very often. Everything is upside down. Can't find anything anymore. It's got to be kept in order. It's a household. And the one who is in charge of this household is the mind. And that's the one that can keep it in order. So as we meditate and watch the breath, it is a very important function to become aware of the fact that the body breathes and the mind knows it. What could be simpler? But from that, we can infer that this is the truth in all our actions, even though our mindfulness may not be strong enough to recognize the fact that the mind has made up a certain intention to do something or to say something, and we then say it or do it, this is what happens. We have the three doors, thought, speech, and body, or thought, speech, and action. And it's always the thought that precedes the other two. And though we may very often, or sometimes, only become aware of the speech or only of the action and completely miss the thought that was behind it, if we are made aware of that, we can direct our mindfulness towards that and become aware of the thought that has generated this. Now, thought, speech, and action are always dependent upon what has arisen in the mind. And if we become aware of the fact that all of that is constantly arising and ceasing, we will not react so impulsively. Sometimes people say something nasty and then five hours later or ten hours later or whatever, when it's finally come home to roost, they go to the person that they have said this to and say, you know, I'm sorry about what I said this morning. I wasn't myself. Who was I? The nasty part of me, obviously. <laughs> so what I wasn't was I wasn't mindful. So if we are a meditator and a practitioner, we might in future say, look, I'm sorry about that. I wasn't mindful. That's the truth. That's the way it is. I wasn't mindful. I wasn't paying attention. There's no blame attached to that. We often aren't mindful. The um, only uh, consideration we can have is not to hurt others uh, with this lack of mindfulness, which, of course, um, doesn't always work either. So thought, speech, and action 
also give us an insight into cause and effect. Now, the purification of view has as its primary focus of attention to get rid of the idea that here is a solid chunk of me which is as it is and can't be changed and has a core substance and when something bad happens to it, it must be due to something awful outside of oneself. Now that kind of view is the ordinary, everyday kind of view and that creates the difficulties amongst people and amongst our own heart and mind. Now that purification can take place when we pay attention to the fact that the mind is the one that is creating whatever we're doing or saying. In order to reaffirm this kind of understanding, the next one is called the purification of doubt. Is that really so? I've heard it differently, or um, my body tells me differently. My body does all sorts of things, and my mind reacts to that. My body has aches and pains, and my body is uh, hungry and thirsty, and it's the mind that knows that. It's impossible for the body to know. It's the mind that knows it. The connection is so immediate that we find it difficult to differentiate. But now our other and next investigations will help help us to understand that from the ground up, where there's no more any doubt about it. we are urged by the Buddha to investigate the five khandhas. Now, I have already mentioned them, the five aggregates, and I will repeat them and say something more about them. The five are, one is the body, and four are mind. And often people want to know what does mind consist of. Well, mind consists of the four aggregates. Sense contact, sense consciousness, feeling, perception, mental formation. The sense consciousness has to be understood in the first place because it's the first thing that happens. It's described by the Buddha in this way. First we have a sense base. Let's use the eye that can see. Now, this sense base of the eye is in good condition. It's not blind. It can see. And then we have a sense object, this thing here, something there to be seen. So then the eye consciousness meets up with the eye object and seeing results because this base here is in order, it can have a consciousness of this sense, 
which is strictly the I consciousness, and there is the object, and when the, they meet, we have seen. But what does the I see? It sees form and color, and it's a mind that says, this is a microphone. The I cannot possibly do that. The same goes for the ear. The ear is in order, we're not deaf. There is a sound, and so the hearing consciousness arises, and when it meets up with the sound, which it does immediately, hearing results. But the ear doesn't hear truck, it doesn't hear cough, it doesn't hear interruption, it hears sound, sound only. It cannot possibly hear anything else. And then the mind says, oh, that must be the garbage truck. Funny, they're only coming at 11 o'clock. At home they always come at 7 o'clock in the morning. It's strange. I wonder why, why they're doing that. Is it really 11 o'clock? I better have a look. Oh, yes, it's 11 o'clock. <laughs> And so on, and so on. And all that happened was sound. So now, if we get that into our understanding, we can actually sit through a discussion which we dislike without having dislike arise. Sound only very helpful. Now, of course, if somebody should then... Hmm? <laughs> A discussion which we may not like throughout, without having dislike arise because we can have sound only. It can be very helpful, but it can also be, of course, somewhat embarrassing because the other people might eventually ask, so what do you think about it? <laughs> and you don't think anything because you haven't heard anything. Um, it's still preferable to getting upset. Much preferable. Anything is preferable to getting upset. So if we can practice sound only, we are also very much helped in the meditation because there are sounds, no matter where one goes. Actually, there's the sound of one's own breathing. And that, too, can be disruptive. There's the sound of the rumbling of one's own stomach if one happens to be hungry. There are all sorts of sounds which have nothing to do with a person who is coughing or a truck that is arriving, anything. So if we do not attach to that sound, our understanding of it, which is mind-produced, we have a great support system for the meditation because sounds are everywhere. The world, the universe, is full of sound. In the Hindu tradition, there's an underlying sound in the universe, the Aum, which is everywhere. And we can notice that 
in the greatest seclusion, there is still sound. So it's disruptive when we put the mind to it, whatever it may be, whether it is a loud one or not so loud one, they're all making the mind tell stories, which is exactly what we don't want. In our everyday living, if we can use some of that, particularly with sound, in the cities that people live in today, it would also be helpful to be able to refrain from thinking about it. Sound only. When it's sound only, it's not disruptive. It is very, it is faint, much fainter than as if we put our attention on it and let it arise as a solid um, experience. It's much fainter, doesn't attack one so much, and it doesn't have any negative qualities. Because what can be negative about sound? It just is. It exists. It's vibration. Just like everything else in the universe, it's vibration. The whole universe is full of vibration. In fact, we can say, quite without fear of contradiction, the universe is vibration. And sound is one of them. So this is one, the first of the four mind khandas, aggregates, that we can look at in this way. The same goes for the other sense contacts, which are usually not quite as uh, strong uh, in our daily experience as seeing and hearing. We don't always taste something except when we eat. We don't always smell something, and we're not always concerned with touch contact. We are at times. But hearing and seeing are the most prevalent in our daily experience. And Hearing and touching are the most prevalent in the meditation experience, which, of course, result in thinking. And the touch contact, in the same way, if we then use that touch contact to have an opinion about it, a viewpoint, then, of course, it becomes something to escape from or to dislike or to attach to. Because the next thing after contact, after sense contact, is feeling without fail. Arahant, fully enlightened one, has sense contact and then feeling. One must not imagine that an enlightened person has no feeling or no sensation. That would be foolishness, and is, I've heard it said sometimes. Sense contact produces feeling. Now we have this very excellent example with our touch contact, when we sit. When we sit, then there is some sort of uh, unpleasant feeling. It comes from this particular sense contact, and then when we react to it, to that unpleasant feeling, 
we are already in some sort of misery. And as we can see that it is only unpleasant feeling when we learn that, we actually have found the doorway out of the cause and effect which keeps us bound in birth and death over and over again. When we have any sort of sense contact, maybe a thought that's also sense contact, or touch, in this case let's use touch, and the unpleasant feeling arises, which it easily can do through touch contact, because if the touch contact is a little harder than comfortable, immediately it becomes unpleasant. And we have a whole gamut of professions and uh, an enormous variety of methods trying to get rid of these unpleasant feelings. That's fine, there's nothing wrong with it. But it's a reaction to them which is so detrimental to our well-being. So when this unpleasant feeling arises and we really want to practice, and that's where practice is at, to try and look at it as unpleasant feeling and just take one's mind to what which is, to that which has it then more important, in this case, the meditation object. The unpleasant feeling may arise again and again, and we learn to take the mind of it again and again and put it where it's productive. To stay with unpleasant feeling and react to it is totally unproductive because there is no limit, no end to unpleasant feeling just as there is no limit, no end, to the possibility of pleasant feeling. They always come, they always go. And to react to either one of them, the one with elation, the other with depression, the one with like, the other with dislike, keeps us in the round and the realm of constant cause and effect. We haven't got a doorway out. And if we do too much of it, we will easily become depressed by it. Now, in meditation, it has its counterproductiveness in the fact that we can't continue to meditate because it's so unpleasant. Well, it may be so unpleasant, but the only reason we can't meditate or continue to meditate is because the mind's reacting to the unpleasantness with dislike. Now, this is the investigation we need to make into the aggregates. Particularly, I'm talking about the four, which are mind. What it starts with is a sense contact. The immediate follow-up from that is feeling. There are only three kinds, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We are very little concerned with neutral because we are not mindful enough to know it, and we are too foggy to pay attention to it, and sometimes we actually think it's pleasant because at least it isn't unpleasant. So what we are mostly concerned with are pleasant and unpleasant feelings. 
And that, at this point in time, is sufficient. We don't have to try to become aware of neutral because pleasant and unpleasant gives us enough trouble already. So as this feeling is automatic, the next thing that comes from that, which is also quite automatic in our knowledge of ourselves, is the perception, the naming, which says pain in the case of unpleasant feeling. And then comes the automatic reaction of the mind, the mental (coughs) formation, which says, I don't like it, I've got to get rid of it. And that's not all, of course, that the mind says. It usually says, that's due to my parents, my partner, my children, the government, the economic situation, the atomic bomb, anything, Uh, my own fault, anything at all. And then, of course, from that thought comes the next one, if only. And then comes a list of if onlys. Mm -hmm. If only I can fix my parents, my partner, my children, the government, the economy, the pollution, and the rest of it, myself, if only. Then I won't have these unpleasant feelings. Mm -hmm. It's a myth, and everybody operates under that myth as a guarantee that unpleasant feelings exist. They just are. And some of them, of course, are more unpleasant than others. If one is fortunate, has good karma, one gets unpleasant feelings which are bearable. And some people get unpleasant feelings which they can't bear. So they do have to find a way out of that. But as long as they're bearable, we are in a position to work with them. So the progression is sense contact, feeling, perception, mental formation. They are not listed like that in the books, but that's how they work. That's how it works always. Now, the first thing to do with that is to see, is it right? Is that what happens? Am I actually doing that? Second thing to do is, where's the me in all those four? Is there anything in those four that remains after the Sense contact has disappeared after the feeling has disappeared, the perception of it has disappeared, and the reaction. The mental formation is our reaction to it. Where is the me? Is there anything left over from all these four? Okay, maybe there's nothing left over. So where is the me then if there's nothing left over? Can I find it somewhere? It's an enormously important investigation and introspection because it also shows something else, that our whole life from morning to night is taken up with sense contact, feeling, perception, and reaction. That's all we ever do. And with the sense contact, we have to include the thinking, because thinking also creates a feeling. That's why I keep saying to you, if you can't feel anything in the loving-kindness meditation, then think it. It will eventually produce a feeling. And from that feeling comes the perception, comes the reaction, which is another mental formation. It's important to investigate. Is this true? Does it really work like that? And then when one finds that this is the way it really works, then one might get the idea 
there must be something more to this than that, than to, to life, than just reacting all the time to my feelings. Now, feelings can be physical sensation, as you get from touch contact, but they can be the emotion, which comes from the thought, which can also come from the seeing or hearing, and emotion can arise from that too. And feeling includes both, includes the sensation and the emotion. So if we find that this is, and if we find that this is true, that this is the way it works, that we do nothing else but that, and that there's actually no me in there, the first thing after we have overcome any doubt in this matter, and this is what this is all about, purifying any doubt in this matter, the first thing that happens is that we can refrain from reacting. We don't have to react. It's okay, it's happening, but we don't have to react. And the minute we don't react, we are a neutral observer. We are a watcher of what's going on. And when we observe and are not the actor in that play, the whole play collapses very quickly. If there are no actors on the stage, we don't have a play. It's not happening. As only the people sitting in the uh, seats trying to watch what's going on, but if there's nobody acting it, the whole thing is over before it starts. And this is exactly what happens in our own experience. If we observe ourselves in this manner, by watching these four steps taking place, which they're continuously doing. You don't have to wait for anything special to happen. You can watch it any moment of the day while we are um, awake. And if we watch it and don't react to it, the whole thing doesn't have any strength to it. It falls apart. And then the next sense contact arises, and the next feeling and the next perception and the next reaction. And because the first one worked nicely, we're no longer attentive to the second one, and then we're reacting again. So as we can become aware of this, it becomes easier and easier. Perfection is for the enlightened one, for a person who has done the whole work already and has finished everything. We cannot expect perfection. What we can expect from ourselves is effort and diligence, trying to see. We can expect from ourselves that we will no longer, if we're meditators and practitioners, we will no longer look for solutions outside of ourselves. If there were any solutions outside of ourselves, they would have long ago been found. People are constantly at it. We're finding new serums to get rid of sicknesses. And what do we get? New sicknesses. We find new ways of programming computers. And what do we find? People stealing the whole input of a computer. It just isn't possible to find the solution out there somewhere. 
just as we were dependent upon a farmer producing food thousands of years ago, we're still dependent on it. We depend upon the nine inches of topsoil and somebody sticking a seed in it. We still need exactly the same as we did then. So that's what we can expect from ourselves as a practitioner and as a meditator, to find the solution within. That we don't find it immediately doesn't matter, but to search for it and not to search for it outside of ourselves. Also, outside of ourselves is much too varied and much too proliferated. We don't know where to look. In here, there are only two things, mind and body. Quite simple, easy to look for. So the five khandas, the five aggregates, first of all the four, are a meditation subject for insight. And they can bring a different perspective to ourselves. When we see that our sense contacts are what we are constantly concerned with and have also the identification system going, that that's me. So we don't just have the outside identification system that I'm woman, a man, a mother, a father, and so forth, or a lawyer, or a banker, or whatever it may be, or a dropout, or whatever it is we're identifying with, but we have that inner identification system which is much more um, gra uh, gripping us because we identify with each sense contact. That's me seeing that. Now, that's the investigation, and it helps us to realize the impermanence of it, which will also diminish that strong identification. It's a slow process to see it more and more that there's really nobody there. It's just happening all the time. And the more we re react to it, the more miserable we make ourselves. It's as simple as that, which still doesn't make it easy. We, we produce all our own miseries because we react to our sense contacts. The, there's nothing to be believed about that. It's all to be investigated. And if we have a meditative investigation, it's much more productive of insight because the mind is not concerned with other things at the time, or at least it tries not to be concerned with other things. It tries to stay with this. You can use any sense contact during the meditation for that investigation. A sound, a touch contact, a thought, any one of them. You may, when you have your eyes closed, not see anything, but you can open them, have a uh, eye contact, eye consciousness, and then close it again and use that. There may be nothing to smell or to taste, but there's enough to do with the other sense contacts. These are, this particular investigation is mentioned by the Buddha 
particularly in the uh, foundations of mindfulness, as a very important insight path. It also brings to mind cause and effect. And the Buddha's teaching is often called cause and effect because he showed that as a center center point of the whole of our mistaken view that we do not pay attention to cause and effect. Now in the khandas, in the aggregates, you can see that it's all cause and effect. Because we have these senses, the eye and the ear and so forth, there are contacts made. And because of the contacts made, we have feelings. And because of the feeling, we have the perception. Because of the pep- perception, we have the reaction, the mental formation. It's all cause and effect, the whole thing. One depends on the other. Eventually, we will come to a point in our meditation, in our practice, where we realize that all that which has cause and effect, which means conditions on which it relies, is unsatisfactory. And this is the first instance where we can become aware of the unsatisfactoriness of the feeling which are feelings which are created by these um, contacts, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. And this will bring us then eventually one day to the point where we're looking for that which does not have cause and effect, which is unconditioned. But as you may remember from the um, beginning of the discourse, All of these steps need to be taken, but the only step which actually in the end brings one to that. When Sariputta kept asking, is this the goal or is that the goal? Is the next one the goal? Punya kept saying, no, 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 nothing of that kind. And then Sariputta said, so what is the goal if you're saying no to everything? And he says, it's Nibbana, which means no clinging. And this is the letting go process which I have mentioned so many times, and which applies to the most minute detail and then eventually to the whole of our uh, system of believing that we are somebody. Here we have the cause and effect in the khandas, in the essay work one to number four, and our reason, and I'll give you that right now so that you have it a little easier maybe to investigate. Our reason for having put a me in there is our clinging to them. Some people even cling to unpleasant feelings and then use that for therapy for years on end. Clinging is our cause for me. So when you investigate these four aspects of mind, this is the understanding we can finally come to that it is our hanging on to all this that we identify with that makes us believe there's a me. If you sit in meditation and investigate it, you may find that the you may find an opening there. You might get 
a grip on that, how it works. We can't let go just like that. But the first step is to find out that that's what we're doing. If we don't find out that that's what we're doing, we'll never let go because we keep on doing it. No way we could possibly do anything about it. The reason that these things are called khandas, skandas, and aggregates is because they're heaps. And that's an interesting aspect also. Now, we think of an eye contact or a sound contact hearing or a thought as one whole thing. So there I can see, I can hear, I get a feeling, pleasant, unpleasant. I name it and I can then have a thought about it. And each one of these is considered by us as a, a mass, something solid. This is what's happening. Now, if we sit in meditation and use as much mindfulness as we possibly can to investigate any one of these four or all of them, we will eventually come to the uh, experience that there isn't anything that has a solid aspect. All of it, whether it's a thought or a feeling, is a group, like a heap, which consists of all little bits and comes together as a heap, makes itself known and falls apart. So the aggregate is a heap of something. Any one of these four have that quality, which needs to be seen because it's useless just to believe it. So one can say, oh yeah, okay, it's a heap. Well, that's nice. Um, it doesn't make any difference whether it's a heap or whether it's solid if one just believes it. But when one notices it inside of oneself, that the thought, particularly the thought, might be one of the things which make a real difference, that the thought is not a, a solid thing, but that it has the aspect of different particles coming together as if there were... One could say that it, the analogy that comes to mind is if there are little sparkles, you know, like people have these um, uh, fireworks and they have sparklers, and you get little sparkles, and they come together and make one big sparkle, and then falls apart. And this is what a thought is like. It doesn't have to sparkle. It's only a, an, a, an analogy to make it more clear. Um, and that's what a feeling is like, and that's what a sense contact is like. All of them are like that. And if we notice that within ourselves, again, it makes an enormous difference in our perspective upon ourselves because of the fact that we do not see ourselves so solid anymore. Solidity hides the corelessness the insubstantiality of ourselves because it looks so solid. So this looks very solid and it feels very solid. There's flesh and bone there. And actually the same thing applies to the body, which is the fifth one of those heaps. We may think that we don't identify with the body because we know it's going to die. But 
as a matter of fact, most people do. Because they look in the mirror and say, that's me. And they look down and say, well, that's me sitting here. Who else could it possibly be? I mean, you know, it's not you, so it must be me. There's no other choice, apparently. But if we actually go in with mindfulness and bear attention and watch the bodily processes of which we can become aware, we can become aware of the breath, of the blood going around, of the heartbeat. We can become aware of uh, some sensations, some of them unpleasant, some of them pleasant. We can become aware of the body being sitting here in a apparently solid heap. When we watch any of these, for instance, the breath, very, very carefully, we can notice that that too is not just one breath. It's also just like those sparklers. Little bits coming together, making a whole falling apart. New one, little bits coming together, making a whole falling apart. Whole with a W in front. English language really funny. <laughs> the same applies to everything else in the body. And as we become more and more aware of that, we can actually become aware of the cells. Not as cells, but as the constituents of this body where everything keeps coming together and falling apart. We can actually feel this uh, movement. And if we feel this movement, which is totally neutral, it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and if we feel this movement and then have already had the direction to know what it means, we can understand that this whole body is not one solid mass. If it were a solid mass, why does it deteriorate, gets old, and dies? Why is it changing all the time? You put more food in, it gets fat. You put less food in, it gets thin. If it were a solid mass, it couldn't do that. It couldn't be changing all the time. The hair changes. The teeth change. Everything keeps changing all the time. Even in the, the interior organs change, for the worse, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, because these are constantly coming together and falling apart and not always coming together in the same way. Now, if that is noticed in a meditative procedure, it makes an impact. When I tell you about it, it's just interesting, that's all. But when you actually experience this, it makes impact. It makes impact, which is called insight. As soon as something has made an impact on one's psyche, that's insight. Because we'll never behave exactly the same again. The whole thing is not as we thought it was. We always have taken the easy way out. Naturally, everybody thinks like that, so you know, why bother? And uh, we know somebody somewhere who seems to be happy I never think about these things, so why should we? But it doesn't work. Eventually, 
if we are thinking persons who are searching for a truth, we will be confronted with our own humanity somehow or other. And we're going to have to find out what it means. And when we are confronted with it and have to find out what it means, nothing can compare to the guidelines that the Buddha has given us. They are so direct and so minute and so detailed and so unemotional that they are the kind of thing that we can use just through investigation. Insight is unemotional. Calm is emotional. We have all of that at our disposal. Insight is completely without like or dislike. Insight is an aha experience. It says, ah, that's what it is. And that's it. And if we have an aha experience where the mind gets to know that which it has always known in a different way, then we have gained a foothold on the inside path. Now with our some calm, which has arisen through the meditation, we have an excellent opportunity to do that kind of investigation. The progression, the inherent clinging and therefore the me, it's constant change and it's um, aspect of particles which are not ever solid. These are investigations which we can all make and see whether they bring us a certain objectivity towards ourselves. They won't immediately bring a letting go of me, but they will certainly bring about an objectivity towards this person with whom we are so concerned and who creates so many problems for oneself and who creates all sorts of daily um, sorrows and miseries which we don't seem to be able to solve. If we have a an objectivity towards that person by seeing him or her in a totally objective manner where we consist of different parts which are constantly changing, we may already have an, an ability to change our approach to that which creates some difficulty in our lives. It's very rarely that we find people who don't have some difficulty. And if we change our approach to that, the difficulty dissolves. Believe it or not, it disappears because the approach is different. It just isn't anymore going towards it as a problem. It goes, the mind goes towards it as just a happening. If we approach something as a happening and not as a problem, the whole thing disappears. That's why meditation must eventually bring one to a situation where problems are few and far between. The Arahant, of course, doesn't have any, but 
in between times we do get less and less. The other thing which needs investigation is the cause and effect system. Now the cause and effect, which I've already mentioned as far as the four mind khandas are concerned, also applies to the body. It's also cause and effect. We know that when we eat, we can keep this body alive. We know that when we eat too much, we might feel uh, nauseated. We know that when we eat too little, we might feel hungry. We know that if we don't put this body to sleep, it gets exhausted. There's constant cause and effect. And also, much more important than any of these, but these are easy to see, it's a fact that this body has only arisen out of our own personal greed. And if we can ever see that clearly, we'll never blame our parents again for not behaving properly when we were little. We arose because we wanted to. That's all that is to it. And we arose usually also in a place which was consistent with our development at the time. That is more or less a general uh, truth. So the whole thing comes back to our own um, makeup. Now the person, of course, who had the greed to arise is not the same person that we are now. <coughs> but what we can be aware of at this point in time is a fact that we still have this craving, greed, craving, all the same things, wanting to be here. And that's part of this whole aspect of being a human being. doesn't mean that we should have the craving not to be here. We are beset with three cravings, the Buddha said. One is the craving to be, one is the craving not to be, you know, the suicide ideas when things go too wrong, and then our craving for sensual gratification. These are the three cravings which are underlying human existence and the cause for human existence. And this cause for human existence then has an effect that what we know about human existence. We know all about it, don't we? We're doing it. And it's less than satisfactory. It has its moments, luckily. If it didn't have its moments, we'd be in a worse condition than we are. It has its moments, which the Buddha explained in this way. This is the best realm to get enlightened in. We have enough dukkha to try to do something about it. But we also have enough sukha, enough pleasant sensations and moments, not to become totally depressed by them, by the dukkha. So we have a fair balance here. And this is the place to get enlightened in. This is the realm where the Buddha got enlightened. He was a human being, and he got enlightened as a human being, and then, of course, transcended being a human being because he was enlightened. But we have, because of this cause and effect system that pervades the universe and therefore pervades us, we have this existence. And also, because of cause and effect, 
whatever happens to us is an effect of causes which we have, we have put into motion. Now, this is a very important understanding because if we don't see that, we will constantly be tempted to blame outside conditions. As long as we blame the outer trigger, we haven't seen the spiritual path. Naturally, there are outside conditions that affect us. But how they affect us, that's our own situation. That's all there is to it. If we become angry, despondent, depressed, worried, fearful, unhappy, grief-stricken by these outer conditions, that's our reaction. And some of the outer conditions may have strong impact on us. And we may not be able to help the reaction. But there are so many outer conditions that we can practice on, particularly in meditation. And those are the ones that we should practice on in order to recognize and realize that it's nothing but a personal reaction which makes the outer condition either dreadful or acceptable. All outer conditions are acceptable because they are. That's all there is to them. If we have an ability, a skill, some sort of faculty, facility within us to change an outer condition which is detrimental to the well-being of oneself and others, by all means, let's use that skill. If we don't have it, let's keep our mouth shut. There are so many outer conditions which are detrimental to one's well-being. The ones that have, if one has a certain skill, we should put it into the service of humanity. Otherwise, nothing. But how we live is dependent upon our own reaction to all these conditions. Conditions means people saying something, people doing something, whatever it is that we come into contact with. And if we are really aware of cause and effect, we will also have another understanding. We will have an understanding that either consciously or subconsciously, without knowing, we have done something that has created the condition we are confronted with. We would never be confronted with conditions that were not within our realm of experience. It just doesn't happen that way. Nobody is going to ask any of us whether we'd like to be President of the United States. It's just not part of our experience. We just haven't done anything to deserve that kind of fate. So... <laughs> But we do get into situations where somebody wants to do something with us or against us, which we don't approve of. Well, that's the kind of situation we brought on by ourselves. Whether we know it or not makes no difference. And that's karma and its resultants. And karma and its resultants has its greatest 
significance in this life. What we've brought with us from the past, there's nothing we can do about it. And what's going to happen in the future is totally depend upon what's happening now, this moment. So the only real significance is now. And most of the karmic resultants in everyday life, which are usually of mediocre importance but do constitute our life, have been generated in this life. Some great, major, enormously important things may have been generated in the past. It doesn't bear to think about it. It's totally unimportant. Who cares? We've been around so many times, and if we don't watch out, we'll be around so many times more. It doesn't really matter. The only thing that we can influence is this one moment, this one now, and that's the one we're concerned with. And it's so fleeting, it's so quick, it's already gone. I can't even talk that fast that the moment isn't gone already. So in our meditation, we can also make an inquiry into cause and effect, which is not only the karmic resultant, but very importantly so. It is, for instance, quite useful sometimes to see some actions, thought or speech, that we have had and that have brought about a very strong resultant. We can see sometimes the connection. If we can't, it doesn't matter either. But we can understand, just by inference, that if we think negatively, we're going to feel negatively. It's that simple. So why not think positively and feel positively? It's so simple to do. It's just a change, that's all. We can examine cause and effect in our own experience, for instance, sit down, make a determination, I'm going to be concentrated, and you actually follow through on it. You actually become concentrated. And how do you feel afterwards? Great. <coughs> Cause and effect. It's working constantly in small matters, in big matters. We are constantly be the subject to it. And the other interesting part of cause and effect is that we are ourselves creating the causes. And that is where we need to be careful. This is the fifth one of the five delivery collections, the one about karma, where we are the creators of our own life experience. Nobody else is doing a thing. And only when we come to terms with that and take full responsibility for whatever it is that's happening and then see how we can change that which is unpleasant into that which will be profitable and wholesome, then we are taking a real hand in our own destiny. Destiny is not something that's imposed upon us. Destiny is what we create. And all of us can create great, far-reaching destinies for ourselves. Not so much 
as becoming famous or important, but within our own heart and mind. Cause and effect is a very important investigation or subject for insight meditation in the smallest um, details. For instance, if we eat or drink or think and then see the result of it. These are all causes and effects which are constantly <laughs> happening. Quite neutral. Doesn't have to be either terrible or wonderful. We must begin to see ourselves in a manner which is less solidly me and more inclined towards the understanding of the impermanent particle-like experience which does not have to be reacted to and which is constantly depend upon our own causes which we create. Now the more good causes we create, the more we will have opportunities for more. The less good causes we create, the less our opportunities become. And this is where we can have a very distinct hand in our own life experience because of the fact if when because of becoming careful of what we do, what we say and what we think, our three doors, all dependent upon the thought, but very often that slides by and it turns into speech and action. So the overcoming of any doubt about the veracity of the teaching has to be done through that investigation, or at least this one that I've mentioned. There are a number of others which we will talk about, but these are important investigations and particularly useful in a meditative frame of mind. Not where it is a logical conclusion, but where it is an inner realization. These two are quite different from each other. All right, that's enough for now. You can ask some questions if you like. Yes. Could you go over again the uh, third and fourth? Like first is the sense contact, then there's the, I guess it's feeling, or liking, disliking, neutral. No. Pleasant, unpleasant, Pleasant, neutral. Perception, the naming. Naming meaning uh, in, in the sense of a thought, naming it like pain, pleasure, giving it a name. Just a unpleasant. That's just a feeling. It's either pleasant or unpleasant. We're going to leave neutral aside. We're going to work okay. with pleasant and unpleasant, okay? So then pain is perception. Perception. The namer. The mental formation, which is the reaction. I don't like it. I do like it. I want to keep it. I want to get it again. I want to get rid of it. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's a fault. Any thoughts about it? Any kind of thoughts about it? Reaction. And we get hooked in by the 
No. I mean, that's what causes the... Oh, the perception. You know, once we start identifying... Yes. The minute... Well, actually, the reason we're hooked is because we're identifying with all four. Okay. I'm seeing, I'm hearing, and I'm feeling unpleasant, so I must say this is pain, so I must react to it. That's our hook, the identification system. What are you identifying with? The being the ones that are being slaughtered or the ones that are slaughtering? The ones that are being slaughtered. Okay. Well, the first thing that you can do with that is that you are imagining it. You're not being slaughtered. That's the first thing. It's just strictly imagination, isn't it? And uh, the second thing that you can see is that you are disliking the dukkha which is existing in the world. You're not accepting it. And and uh, the uh, next thing that you can see in that is that you haven't thought of cause and effect. Okay. Yes. Um, first, I, I would I want to express my appreciation. First time in decades, I hear the word architect, and it always as a scientist disturbs me. Yes, the word aggregate is fitting. It is put together. It makes it an apparent. Yeah, that's right. It's an aggregation. Yes, that's right. I'm not quite sure whether I've understood your question correctly, but I will answer it in in this way and then see whether that's what you're asking. Um, we practice um, with the wish to get rid of all wishes. Or we practice with the craving to get rid of all craving. As long as we've got some craving, we've got to practice in order to get rid of it. But the craving for existence is our 
um, cause for fear. Any fear is caused by that craving. There is no other fear, but we do give it different names. We say we are afraid of um, uh, racism, we are afraid of sexism, we are afraid of the dark, we are afraid of uh, um, not having enough money, we are afraid of a lot of things. But in fact, what we are uh, afraid of is that our craving for existence is not going to be satisfied. And we can have a written guarantee that it won't be satisfied. We're all going to wind up six feet under. And that's why the human existence is full of fear. And only when we see that, because this is Dukkha. Is that what you were asking? <laughs> I understand what you're saying, but I don't know if that quite was in my original question. Somehow making a connection with maybe there isn't a connection. It's your ambivalence um, that you want to get rid of the me, but it's me that's practicing? that you like the me and you want to get rid of that. Okay. But you're not, you see, the, this is a, maybe just a wrong way of saying it, but you're not trying to get rid of the me because there isn't any. <laughs> you're just trying to get rid of the illusion. <laughs> it's just an illusion you're trying to get rid of. That's all. Well, you're not in, in, uh, alone in that. <laughs> the whole world suffers from that. And they are suffering from it. And it has its moments, as I've said. It certainly has its moments. And uh, there are certain compensations for being around. But they cannot really um, compensate for the inherent um, unsatisfactoriness, which is coming to the fore over and over again. So it's an illusion we're trying to get rid of. And you know... The thing is that when one does get rid of the illusion, one can't imagine why one should have hung on to it. <laughs> it's, a, it's just a problem, that's all. Yes, but it needs practice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Say something about that? Yes. Okay, it's the other side of the same coin as the craving to be. Now, the craving to be is quite obvious, isn't it? I mean, we go up to the freeway and stand in front of a big truck, and I mean, we're going to jump aside, aren't we? We're not going to stand there. But if we think life is just dreadful and uh, everybody's doing the wrong thing towards us, we might stand in front of the truck and let him run over us, right? Well, both are based on that me illusion. When the me illusion is gone, then life continues until the body breaks up with equanimity towards being or not being. And the only thing that the Buddha did in his 45 years of uh, teaching after his enlightenment was trying to help other people. There was nothing else left, I mean, to show them the way. And the, um, when the mere illusion is gone, there's neither that craving to remain, nor is there the craving to get rid of this person who's having all these problems. It's just equanimity. So the uh, craving not to be is just as a wrong view as the craving to be. Sometimes it's considered, well, it must be better. If craving to be is wrong, well, maybe the other side is better. I don't really want to be here. It's too much trouble. But it's the same thing.
Is that clear? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was writing a lot of things. It's the rebirth consciousness. The rebirth consciousness enters into the womb at conception. So in the Buddhist um, tradition, there is absolutely no doubt when a being is there. It's neither at three months, three weeks, four weeks, five and a half months or whatever. It's at conception. The rebirth consciousness enters the womb at conception, the Buddha said. And the rebirth consciousness is that which is, has the craving to be. And the rebirth consciousness is our karmic inheritance from former lives, and that has the craving to be here. And as it has the craving to be here, it comes again. And it comes into that kind of situation which is appropriate to its development. Wherever it's been developed to, that kind of consciousness, it is all totally impersonal. Only we make a person out of it, and we say, oh, that was me in a past life. I mean, it wasn't. It was just a person. And we say, this is me in this life. Well, yes, it's only a person. So the rebirth consciousness, which is also impersonal, arises in the womb and thereby has chosen its place to be. Whether we know it or not makes no difference. But it's not me who has chosen it. No, and it's not you who is now thinking about it either. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, we can feel touch. We can feel touch. But not cup. That's right. Yes. Would you like to hear more about it? <laughs> I can. <laughs> There's That's quite true. Uh, that's quite true. Um, I may say something more about that like uh, in, in that vein because it has a great application to our daily lives. It certainly doesn't matter about what happened before. It has no bearing on it because it's gone. It's done with, you know. So it may be useful to talk about it a little more about what's happening now. Yes. It's a difficult problem. 
You see, there are two sides to this thing. One is that the people who do the political action are um, deluded, have illusion, and have greed and have hate, and are obviously doing something wrong. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean, however, that we ourselves have to have greed and hate. And if we do, because of that particular happening, have greed and hate, we've let it actually enter into us and make a very bad um, effect for us. So if we see something that's happening, we can do two things. Either we can look at it and say, well, some more ignorance in the world, it's happening all the time, it's never stopped and it never will stop. Okay? It's going, it's coming, it's changing, and so forth. We can also think, well, I have this particular skill. I can use this particular skill that I have, whatever it may be, in order to make a change in that happening. And if I have a particular skill and can actually make a change, well, by all means do it for the benefit of humanity. Uh, I pride myself in having a skill in teaching meditation, so I'm doing it. That's all I'm doing. I don't have any other skills. That's all I know. So I use it with the uh, hope that it may do some good. <laughs> and uh, so that's, we have two, I mean, I could also say, well, yeah, I know how to meditate and I can, you know, but, you know I mean, people are ignorant, so let them be. You know, I could do that too. And uh, it would be, that would be a negative statement. But I could also say, well, things are as they are. And uh, there isn't a great deal one can do about it. But that isn't what the Buddha did. I mean, he said, yes, things are as they are, but he had the skill to teach not only meditation, but the Dhamma, so he did it. So that's where we're at. You know. Yes. In the eighth one. Yeah. Mm, yeah, but to it is, almost. Mm. But somewhere out there, there is, there is awareness of that. Is then that awareness connected to all human beings? And it's just our bodies that are in the way? <laughs> yeah, to an extent, that's right. <laughs> the bodies are certainly in the way. Just imagine for a moment that you could sit here in meditation without bodies. Wouldn't it be lovely? I have no problem at all. <laughs> Well, are you talking about the eighth jhana, or which one are you talking about? The, well, I think it was the seventh or so. The sixth one is is the uh, infinity of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're talking about the infinity of consciousness. All right. In the infinity of consciousness, the mind becomes aware of the fact that it is not a personal mind. It's an infinite. It's an infinite mind. There is nothing but an infinite mind. Yes, but you don't say that it's one. It just is. Because that doesn't sound quite right. That's esoteric again. Infinite mind just is. And we're not 
we are we're, we're being in, in existence, we're part of it, yes. And space is infinite. And being in existence, we're part of it. This body, actually, it's, I mean, I was making more or less a joke of it, that if we were to sit here without a body, it would be nice. Space is that experience of a totality which exists in which there isn't any separate bodies because these